Hey, uh, welcome again to Rockbridge Community Church. My name is Matt, one of the pastors on our team. So whichever campus of our five locations that you've gathered to join with us, welcome. If somebody gave you a CD, you logged on to our website, welcome as well. However, you're viewing our uh, message today. So we're in this uh, new summer series called Songs of Summer. We're taking songs that we sing in church and putting them before the message and then the same one after the message and talking about some of the content of those lyrics in the message. This week, we're going to talk about uh, the song we sang a few moments ago, How Great Thou Art. But while we're talking about uh, this notion of singing our faith or singing our beliefs or singing to God or singing about God, we've got a whole ministry here at Rockbridge that is absolutely devoted just to helping us sing and to helping us worship and helping us come together corporately every week and once a month on first Wednesdays and celebrate God and learn about God and experience God. So that's our worship and our production, our worship and tech team. And so if you would like to have more information about that as a way you might want to serve or God might be asking you to take a next step and to serve Him, you can get involved at Sounds, Lights, van, the band, video, uh, worship at rockbridge.cc. You can uh, email that, worship at rockbridge.cc, for more information, and uh, someone from our team will get in touch with you. So I am going to uh, start off by making a statement, and it might make some of you, if you're like real traditional, you might want to get up and leave church, but I'm going to say it and then unpack it, so just give me an opportunity to do that. Uh, I, I'm going to ask us, and some of us, or maybe all of us, to one extent or another, to lose our faith today. Now, I'm a, I'm a preacher who preaches faith, and we're people, if we're a Christ follower of faith, if you're an atheist, you're a person of faith. If you're sitting in that chair, you're a person of faith. If you're hoping your car will get you home, you're a person of faith. So, but I'm going to ask you to lose your faith a, a, a little bit. And, and let me explain what I mean by that, because I want to ask us this question. And the question is, does the God you believe in, does the God I believe in even exist? Now, that's a difficult question because most of you are here because there is something of God or, or, or a God or a version of God that you believe in. But what I've kind of discovered is a couple of things. A lot of people, even if they grew up in church, if they grew up in the Bible Belt, grew up in the Catholic Church, whatever, a lot of us, we have a version of God that we should not believe in. We have an image of God that is incorrect or is incompatible with God's scripture, God's revelation. And, and, and so that God creates problems for us. And, and some of you, you know, you might even say, I am tempted to quit believing in God or I have quit believing in God. So I would say there's a chance you might ought to quit believing in that God because it could be the wrong God. Now, let me take it another step further and say the most important, most telling thing about you is the God you believe in. Let me read you a quote from a favorite pastor of mine, A.W. Tozer. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Is God for me? Is God against me? Is God real and all-powerful or is God distant and unloving? What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most determining factor about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in, deep, in his deep heart conceives God to be like. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but it tells 
so much about who you are, how you're going to respond, how you're going to react, how I can predict with pretty decent accuracy how you'll do marriage, how you'll do money, how you'll make decisions based upon the view of God that you have, how you'll view your life, how you'll view your purpose, how you'll view your, 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 your purpose and significance and your identity based on how you view God. So it's important that we get the right view of God right. And, and for some of you who maybe you're back in church for a season or somebody invited you, you walked away from church because of the view of God that was taught in that particular church. And, and all I want to say is, you may have walked away from a God that does not even exist. Some of us may be believing in a God that does not exist, and that belief in God is giving us some problems. So let's unpack it. And to do that first, let me just give you some views of God that are false views of God, but are commonly held in our culture, in our society, in our country, and even in our churches. And I would ask you, if you hold a notion of this God, we probably ought to lose faith in that God. So let me go through a couple of them. All right, here, here's a few, and, and, I, and I put this together with about three or four other pastors uh, around the country as I did some of their writings. This is the Goosebumps God. The Goosebumps God, and you've said this probably, is, oh, I feel such a peace right now. Or you've said, uh, I just don't feel God right now. And, because you, and in your mind, because you don't feel God, you don't think God's with you. And, and, and hopefully you know that feelings make terrible gods. And there's times where you've woken up and you said, man, I don't feel married today. But you are. <laughs> Anybody who's made it past the honeymoon knows you can't rely on feelings alone to sustain your marriage and I'll tell you this, you can't rely on feelings alone to sustain your faith. And there's some of you today, and you've lost the feeling of God because you had an ooey-gooey way back when at youth camp, or, or ooey-gooey because you went to some cool church service, then you woke up Monday morning, and the ooey-gooey was gone, and you're like, is God gone? That God doesn't exist. God's not a goosebumps God. Here, here's another one. There's the killjoy God. That God, is, and, and that God is just against you having any kind of fun. God is against you having any kind of happiness. That God is out to get you. And, and so there's all these rules and there's all these boundaries. And you, when you think of God, you think of no and hell and guilt and shame. And, and some of you, let's be honest, you walked away from that God. I'm glad you did. He doesn't exist. There's another one, and it's called the smooth sailing God. And this is, the, this is the notion that if God is with me, life is going to be a bed of roses, and there's going to be no storms, and God's going to make me healthy all the time, and God's going to make me wealthy, and I'm never going to have a back problem, I'm never going to have a marriage problem, my kids are going to be perfect little followers of, of the smooth sailing God, because I'm following God, praise Jesus. Okay? Let me just let me bust a bubble. Our faith started when something terrible happened to a good person. Jesus was crucified for you, for me. And that's the centerpiece event of the Christian faith. There's another view of God. It's called the on-demand God. Hey, God, I need you. And it's 911, and it's Cracker Jackbox God, and it's Vending Machine Slot Machine God, and God, I need a little bit of this here and a little bit of that over there, and, I need, and you need to do this, God. And, and, and so we, we, we just demand that God kind of be at our beck and call. Here's another one. 
the anti-science, and I'm going to combine this, the anti-science and the gap God. I don't mean the clothing store, I'll explain. So what I mean by the anti-science God, and some of you honestly know people who struggle with this or you struggle with this, is that, listen, is that God and science are just incompatible and, and that, that you just can't rationalize it. And so Christians just, we don't believe, our Christians are like naive or Christians are like ignorant and, and the, the Bible's wrong on science or the Bible's this and, and it's just crazy. And, and so anti-science God or the gap God. And the gap God is when you can't explain something, you just put God in the gap. We can't explain how we got here. Well, God did it. We can't explain why that parking lot opened up miraculously for us at Crispy Cream Donuts. Well, God must have done that. And, and so God just gets to fill in the gaps. Well, here, here's the cool thing. Do you know that our gaps of knowledge are getting smaller and smaller? As we get more information, we learn more about what makes the earth tick and what makes the atmosphere and what makes climate and how all these kind of things work. And so these gaps get smaller and smaller. And so some people think that just pushes our need for God away and that eventually we just don't need God because we made him up to begin with uh, to provide scientific explanations or to fill in the gaps that now science has completed so we don't need God. I would argue just the opposite. I would argue as the more we understand, the more we see that, wow, there had to be an intelligent, massively powerful, mass massively gracious being behind it all. If I were to take the time, and I couldn't even do this if I wanted to, but if I were to take the time to explain or somebody took the time to explain how your smartphone works, you would not say, well, there's nobody made that smartphone. That just kind of put itself together, and it just works. You would say, wow, Apple, or wow, Samsung, or Android, there's some wicked smart engineers behind that phone. Thank you for the phone, right? But that's a view of a God that doesn't exist. There's, there's another one. It's guilt God. Guilt God. That God is all about you feeling guilty, 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 guilty. You're guilty. You're wrong, 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 wrong. You're messed up. You're, you're mad. And then so some of you, here's the amazing thing. Some of you walked away from guilt God. And when you did, it felt liberating. Oh, I can finally be myself. But let me just explain this. If you remove God from the courtroom of your life, something will always replace that. So you might, you might have walked away from guilt God, but in, in that place you put approval of people God. In, in that place you put hedonism and pleasure seeking and do whatever I want to do God. All right, so, but guilt God doesn't exist. Guilt God is, God is just about rules and making you feel guilty when you don't keep them. He doesn't exist. And then the last one we'll talk about is me and God or coexist God. Like God's my bosom buddy and, and I love God and he loves me no matter what and we just coexist and, uh, and it's kind of like God is Build-A-Bear, you know? And I just put this God together. Hey, as long as I'm doing my best and trying hard, God loves me. God's cool with me. God's by my side. And, and, and you're putting me before God. And really what you're doing is creating a God that makes you feel comfortable, creating a God that is kind of a figment of your imagination. But there's some people that think, hey, God is whoever you conceive him to be for you, oh, precious one. And, and that, that God doesn't exist. So, so I want you to lose your faith today. And, and the greatest gift that the Holy Spirit could give any of us today, and really any sermon, any service, any aha moment, is going to be way more an aha moment. Here's the real God. And that's my prayer. It's been my prayer all day 
and all week leading into this message, that God show us clearly who you are. God has revealed himself in many ways. He's revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in what he did through Jesus Christ in actual factual history. And he's revealed himself in providences that occur But probably the easiest, best, and most reliable and frequent place we can go is to the Word of God to say, God, reveal yourself to us. And there is a particular passage in the Bible that I think very clearly depicts the right view, the real view of God. If you have your Bibles, I welcome you to turn them on or open them up. Or you can, of course, follow along with me to the Old Testament prophet book, prophetic book, excuse me, of Isaiah. And we will be in Isaiah chapter 6. Here's what it says. In the year, so we're in actual history, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, when it says that, we, just to kind of put our, ourselves in the place of, of Isaiah, is this is like a traumatic moment in the life of the people of Israel to lose the king. I, you know, I wasn't alive, but I've heard people talk about when President Kennedy or Martin Luther King Jr. was, was assassinated, uh, the death recently of Billy Graham. There's a sense when that happens of loss and tra- trauma and grief and, and what's going to happen and who's going to take their place and how do we navigate the transition. So we have to understand that Isaiah, not Uzziah, but Isaiah, the prophet who's writing this, is feeling a sense of loss. And when you feel a sense of loss and when you feel a sense of grief, you kind of want God to do something. You want God to fix your marriage today. You want God to heal your sick friend yesterday. You, You want God to step in and whatever it is that's bothering you, grieving you, tormenting you, confusing you, you just want God to fix it because that's your need in the moment, okay? And then what it says next is real insightful and very, very important for us to get because it says, in the year that he died, I saw the Lord. So he's going to get a vision of what is God really like? What is God like in, in, in full, as, as close to high definition as we can get this side of being there? What is God really, really like? And, and so to me, that speaks to us in something that we tend to do. And this is kind of where you begin to get off base in your understanding of God and in your conception of God. That really, we are after, here's what we're after if you think about it, satisfied expectations and satisfying explanations. And yet God simply gives revelation. Now what I mean by revelation is stuff we couldn't figure out, stuff we couldn't make up unless God did it or showed it or gave it. So a lot of us, we come to God and we want God to satisfy or meet our expectations. And as long as God's doing that, you and God are cool and you believe in God. All right, Or you want God to give satisfying explanations. Here's why you got cancer. God, here's why, or or Matt, or or Dalton, or Ringgold, or North, here's why the Great Recession really happened. And here's what God was doing. You want all these explanations. When when is the world going to end? All these kind of things. And what God is going to give, first and foremost, is a revelation of himself. And so I'm going to make an an implication from that, that your greatest need today is not for God to fix your marriage, it's not for God to heal your friend, it's for God to show you clearly who he is. Now you don't feel that as the need, 
But that's the need. Sometimes we want God to treat the symptoms. But God wants to go straight to the heart. And we need to see who He is. Embrace who He is. Which sometimes, sometimes, a lot of times, involves God not meeting our expectations and not giving us satisfying explanations, but astounding us with revelation. So what does Isaiah see? And let me say this. It starts off, and you think the chapter, chapter 6, is going to be all about the death of King Uzziah. We'll never hear his name mentioned again. You'll never see his name again in this chapter. It will become all about God. Here we go. I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. Boom. We'll stop right there and let's unpack. Here's what this means. King Uzziah has died. He's not on the throne of Israel. God's on the throne of the cosmos. God's in control. God's, God's got it. God's in control. God's authoritative. God's powerful. There's no appeal past God. You know, it's like if you take a case to federal court and you don't like it, then you go to appeals court and then you finally get to the Supreme Court. There's no court past God. He's on the throne. See, there, there's, there's like three thrones. Three thrones and there's only three thrones. There's the throne uh, that, that an atheist has, which nobody's on the throne. There's the throne of us and humans, and we put ourselves on the throne. And then there's the throne here in Isaiah 6. A lot of our false views of God are us putting ourselves on the throne and saying, this is the kind of God I would be, therefore this is the kind of God I will imagine. So the God we worship or the God we're asked to believe in is on a throne, large, in charge, in control, even when King Uzziah dies. Large, in charge, in control, even when our marriage is on the rocks, even when the weather is bad, even when finances are bad, even when the Braves don't win. Okay? Large and in charge. And the hem of his robe fill the temple. And we get kind of bridal imagery going on. Like imagine a bride whose train is just so long, it just fills up the room. The word that I would use is resplendent. The word I might use is majestic. That, that the, the center of attention in heaven is God. The center of attention is who God is and what God is like. It is not and so we're trying to get Isaiah's eyes off the death of the king and Isaiah's eyes on this God who's on the throne and whose robe fills up the entire temple. And we get this image of seraphim, and it says this. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings, and this becomes symbolically significant. Two, they covered their faces. Two, they covered their feet. So they take this position of worship and of reverence by covering themselves and kind of this posture of humility. And only with two of the six wings do they flew. Do they fly around and, 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 and praise God? So there's this sense, right, that adoration of God comes before and takes precedence and is more important than activity for God. Let me say it again. Adoration of God is more important because we have four wings going to adoration, reverence, awe, and worship. Two wings to activity. 
Okay, so, so there's this sense of this God, before he demands that we go serve or that we do anything, he just wants us to enjoy him and enjoy his presence. And then there's singing, which we're in this series of singing. And then they called to each other, or they called out, or one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. So holy, holy, holy. Hebrew language, Hebrew grammar is repetition. If I went to an NBA basketball game, and I came back and you said, Hey, what were they like? And I said, tall, tall, tall. You would know exactly what I meant, that these players are just like massive uh, human beings. Okay, so when, he said, when, when we get holy, 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 there's something about God that has to be magnified by this word. The word holy means cut, means separate. So God is completely separated from. He's completely other. He's not able to be contained by human metaphors, human descriptions, and human knowledge. He is other. He is awesome. We can't compare him to anything else. His glory fills the whole earth. His glory is, go back please, his glory is his holiness going public. His glory is where you feel the weight of who God is. Okay, it's not, oh, I believe in God, I believe in Christmas and Easter, see you next year. It's God, holy, holy, holy. There's a weight that takes on in your soul, in your mind, in your heart that fills up the human psyche, the human spirit, the human mind in the presence of this God who is holy, holy, holy. So this is way past believing factual things about God. This is experiencing beauties and glories and majesty of who God actually is in his core. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. So God can't really be contained. He can't really be described. There's this power, there's this sense, there's this thing about God that is just massive and awe-inspiring. Let me use that word again, awe-inspiring. Do you know you were created with the capacity for awe? A-W-E. It doesn't matter where you are in your journey with God. It doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. You are wired for awe. Oh. It's like when you give your kid a toy and they first, oh, you know, and then they're infatuated with the toy and then they get rid of it three days or three seconds later and they're looking for the next toy, right? Because your capacity for awe grows and you get bored because that's pointing your soul somewhere that you were made to stand in awe of something or someone and your whole life is trying to find the right someone or right something to stand in awe of and you'll pick money and you'll pick sex and you'll pick another human being as your spouse or as your partner. You'll pick a job, you'll pick a car, but Isaiah is like, holy, holy, holy. We're wired for awe, and you're going to take your life will go in the direction of what strikes you as most awe-inspiring. And we have this word again that's repeated three times, holy, 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 meaning I don't know how to describe God. He's so other. He's so beyond. He's so infinite. And we get this sentiment throughout the scriptures. Exodus 15, 11 says this, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? 
who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome. There it is, in praise is working wonders. So you're completely other. I can't, there's no way to compare. You're awesome. 1 Samuel 2, 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. Now, now, now stop for a minute. When we say, I can make a case that human beings are holy in some ways, and let me explain. That means we're unlike uh, things, but I have to describe human beings in comparison to someone else. So if I say, man, he's big and muscular, okay, you in your mind are saying compared to, and you know what not big and muscular is, because we human beings, we compare ourselves. If I say they're great at basketball, or they're great at a sport, they're holy to basketball, they're set apart for basketball, you, you, have, a, you have a relative understanding of what I mean. If I say he's rich, relatively, that's how you understand rich. There's difference between rich in America and rich in the world. And so holy to money or holy to wealth, set apart other, for what you do that in comparison. Here's what he's saying. I can't compare God to anything. I cannot compare him to anything. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you because your robe fills up the whole temple. And there is no rock like our God. So God, in one word, is this word, holy. Holy. In a way, listen, that when we get God right, there's a weight or a glory that's felt inside us and kind of comes out of us. Okay? So we're wired... Okay, not just for God, let's get the facts right about God. We're wired to feel the glory of God experienced as awe at his holiness, at his otherness, at his infiniteness. At, there's just nothing to describe. There's nothing to compare. This awe. And, and when that hits you, it hits you like a ton of bricks and you really can't get over it. Now, I want to compare two things. I want to share with you uh, the, the, a statement of a really renowned atheist about this notion of beauty. Like, where do we get the notion that things are beautiful? But man, that's beautiful. Okay, and, and listen, listen to what he says, and we're going to compare this for a second. This is Richard Dawkins. He says this, when you look at certain scenery, think Grand Canyon, think Swiss Alps, think the mountains here in North Georgia, you think it is so beautiful because your ancestors believed that there was food out there, and that that particular neurological feature that helped them survive has now come down to you, and that's the reason you see it as beautiful. And there's something about that that's like, that just doesn't seem natural. Hey, baby, you're beautiful because the chemicals in my brain and the genes from the Neanderthal man are telling me you're beautiful. Will you be my valentine? You're going to send that card back, ladies. There's some, that doesn't hit the heart, right? Now, now, so compare what he says with the lyrics of the song that we just sang a few minutes ago in church. How great they are. Listen, oh Lord my God, go back. When I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, it's not an accident, it's not just a genetic mutation going on. It's not chemicals in the brain. There is something beyond, something other, something awesome, someone. Oh, Lord, my God. 
I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul. What is he saying soul? This is not then sings my head. This is not then sings, you know, just my vocal cords going off because my brain is sending a signal. Then sings my soul. I feel the glory of God's holiness deep within me and I can't contain it. So then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Now, there's something more enriching and satisfying to those lyrics of those songs than this factual explanation of a renowned atheist. And when that view of God hits you, something happens. Listen to what happens to Isaiah, verse 5. Then I said, woe is me. Here we go. Hold on. Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips. Now, there's a sense there because Isaiah is a prophet. When he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, he's like, I'm insufficient. I'm incompetent. I'm incapable. My profession, I'm worthless at it. I am incapable. And there's like this existential identity crisis because God is so different, so other, so holy, and he feels it in his soul, that glory, the holiness of God gone public. He's like, I'm undone. I can't stand before the presence of something, so, some being so completely awe-inspiring. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies, my eyes have seen. He's got a correct vision of God, and he's undone. Now, so in the presence of God, there's this, I can't be here. I shouldn't be here. Okay, imagine you go waller in a pig pen and mud, and then you zoom into the emergency room and there's surgery going on, and you walk in full of mud, and they got a body and a person opened up right there, and you're, I shouldn't be here because I'm unclean. God is that holy. We're that unclean. So something has to happen. But it reveals a tendency that we have as human beings. Let me explain it. We tend, all of us do, we tend to look more at our problems or our potential than God. And Isaiah does that. I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't be here. I shouldn't be here. My problem is here. And we forget God. We forget God's presence. We forget the reality of God. Or my potential is too limiting, so I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. And we don't look at God. And then notice what God and what happens in the throne of heaven, the throne of heaven in verse 6 through 8. Very paradigmatic, very very symbolic. But notice what happens, because immediately God moves to get Isaiah's eyes off his uncleanliness. And here's what God does. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with those two wings for flying, four of the wings for worship and adoration, two for activity. And in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity, your sin, your uncleanness, whatever, and your, is removed and your sin is atoned for so you can stay. How can unclean people stay in God's presence? Because he's so holy. Oh, 
because God makes provision to remove our sin, Jesus on the cross. God makes provision to pay our sin penalty, Jesus on the cross. And from that moment, that experience with God, a question arises from God himself. And he says this, Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Who will go for us? God is a trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit. Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. All because a vision of God was corrected and all because a vision of God was given through God given God's grace of revelation. And listen, listen, listen. We're not talking about the death of the king anymore. We're talking about the worth, the majesty, and the holiness of the king of kings. Now imagine you walked in here today with a marriage problem. You walked in here today with a weariness problem, a bitterness problem, a frustration problem. And sometimes you think, hey, Matt's going to give me a how-to and three steps, and I'll be, have a better marriage tomorrow. Or four steps and my anger will be gone. I want you to hear from me and I love you when I say this. You need a vision of God first. That will take the weight of your weariness, the weight and the burden you feel in your marriage, the weight of your anger and the glory and the holiness of God will displace that and you're just, God is bigger. God is holy and I'm in awe of Him. So the holiness of God is a beautiful thing. It does a couple of things for us. The holiness of God is comforting. It's comforting because God is so other. He's always on the throne. He's always seated on the throne. He never gets up, figuratively speaking, because it's all settled in his sovereignty. And isn't it reassuring to know that corruption's not on the throne? Cancer's not on the throne? Isn't it reassuring to know your performance is not on the throne? Isn't it reassuring to know how your day at work went is not on the throne sometimes? I mean, it's comforting that God is so other, so holy, he stays seated even when the death happens on earth. It's also rebuking because you, in the presence of God, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm a person of unclean lips. See, here's, the, here's, the, here's why we need a holy God. Because sin sometimes is attractive. Sin sometimes feels good. Sin sometimes works on earth to get us ahead or to give us success or give us the girl or give us the guy or give us the money or give us the feeling. Sin sometimes works. And so there's this sense in our utilitarianism to say, if it feels good, if it works, it must be okay, right? Sometimes, and if you've raised kids, you know this. If you've been a teenager, you know this. Sometimes stupid looks good. But when you stand in the presence of a holy God... Suddenly, all that sin and stupidity comes into focus, and you're like, I'm undone. So it's rebuking in a healthy way. And then the holiness of God is a calling or ascending. As we say at Robbridge, it's living sin. We fall in love with God, and that overflows, and we're sent out by God because we realize if we're called by a holy God, that means God is calling us into holiness. God is calling us into being separate from the world, but then being sent into the world like Isaiah was. So it, God, you realize your purpose, you realize your significance, that, hey, God's holiness is comforting, it's rebuking, but it's also calling and sending me out into the world 
So I, I find striking similarities between my journey and probably your journey and Isaiah's journey. And let me walk us through what I mean. All right? Isaiah's journey here in Isaiah 6 starts with a felt need. The king is dead. The earthly king is dead. You've got felt needs today, church. I don't know what yours are in particular. I know some of it because I read our prayer list. But I, I, I know anytime I speak, I'm talking to marriages on the brink. I'm talking to people who, who are dealing with cancer. I'm talking to people who maybe are ready to give up on God, give up on life. I'm talking to people who have pseudo or fake joy because your joy is in sex or your joy is in a drug or your joy is in your job instead of in the Lord. So I, I know all of us walk in here and there's something on us, weighing on us. And, and that was walking. That was on Isaiah. And then what does God do? God gives himself. Please listen. That is always God's answer. You want God to give you a million dollars. I get it. (coughs) You want God to get rid of the pink slip. You want God to remove the zit on your face the night before prom. I get it. Okay, I get it. But God gives himself. When Job goes through hell on earth and stands up before God and says, I want to ask you some questions, God never gives him an explanation. God gives him a revelation and said, God, did you make the earth? And Job's like, well, no. Then don't tell me how to run it. He gives himself. What happened at Christmas? What did God give? Himself. What happened at Easter? What did God give? Himself. What is the greatest thing the Christian is waiting for? It's not for the promotion at work. It's for when Christ comes again. God always gives himself. And so sometimes you get this notion, this view of heaven, this kind of God that gives himself. Is God full of himself? You know, if I'm full of myself, you call me egotistical. What about God? He's giving himself. Listen, God can't give you anything better than himself. If he's holy, the best thing God can give you is himself. Imagine your friend is, is at, you're at the lake or at the beach, and your friend is out there drowning. And Michael Phelps strolls by and says, what's going on out there? And he's like, I can't help him. I don't want to be full of myself. You would be like, go get him, Michael. But imagine this. You're, you're under attack. Your house is under attack. And suddenly a group of Navy SEALs walks in. Says, hey, anything we can do? Well, yeah, you can defend us. No, we don't want to be boastful and proud. No, we'll just sit back and we'll... God, the greatest thing God can do is give you himself into your cancer. The greatest thing God can do is to give himself into your guilt, into your shame. And so God always, because he gives the best, so he always gives himself. And if that's what you want more than anything else on the planet earth, you'll never run dry. And that puts us, this is where Isaiah was. At a crossroads. Where do I look? Do I keep looking at my problem? Do I keep looking at my sin, my uncleanliness? Or, 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 do I look at God? Do I look at who God is? See, there's always two competing visions of life, is there not? There's the vision that life is about me. And thus it becomes about what I fear, inadequacy, failure, futility, death, whatever. Or there's this vision of a God who sits on a throne, who's completely holy, completely other, and completely majestic and yet amazingly merciful. It's always two glories. And so the crossroads kind of puts you there. And when you get at this crossroads, let me tell you something where many of us are, many of you are. 
then you got to ask yourself, do I really want a God like that? And I want to press, I really want to press. Do I really want a God who is that big, that awe-inspiring, that amazing? Because honestly, sometimes don't we really just want a God that's just a little more powerful than us, a little smarter than us? Because that way we can kind of control him. And a lot of religion, I'm not talking about faith, biblical, historic faith, but a lot of religion is just our attempt to control God. I pray this prayer five times, you'll be with me, right, God? You'll do what I want, right, God? And we develop this false view of God. But, 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 here's where we are. When the view of God is right, I'm convinced three things happen. When your view of God, my view of God is right, self is displaced. You forget about you. You forget about your problems. Or they just kind of take a perspective and they're no longer in the driver's seat. They're no longer in the front seat. They're still with you and they still annoy you. And you still say, God, take it away. But God, I know you're bigger and better. So self is displaced. Even though, even though we're sinners or unclean people in the presence of God, we're not even looking at our sin. We're looking at our Savior. We're looking at our king. So self is displaced. And then I think this is so true, and this is why we're doing this series. Then singing, holy, 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 or worship is present. God, how great thou art. There's an overflow of the soul. Remember, his glory fills the whole earth. His glory is his holiness going public. And the weight of that holiness hitting the human soul in such a way that self is displaced, sin is displaced, sh- uh, shame is displaced, guilt is displaced, and we feel the glory of God. So then sings my soul, O oh Lord my God, right? How great thou art. And then the third thing I think when we get the view of God right, or God reveals it and we receive it, is sacrifice is then willing, even joyful. Here I am, send me. Some of times we like, I can't believe people would leave their country, leave their language, leave their culture, and go be a missionary. You may tell you why they do it. I got a view of God. I would not have started, I mean, it's God's idea. I would not have started Rockbridge Community Church. The Navy was throwing tens of thousands of dollars to keep a nuclear-trained guy in the Navy if God hadn't given me a vision of himself. It wasn't in me to do this. <laughs> okay? And, and what's beautiful about this is this paradigm, you're a teacher, this is still your paradigm. You're a business person, this is still your paradigm. You're, you're, you're a retiree, this is still your paradigm. Self is displaced overflow of the soul to God, and God, I'm going to work, I'm going to retirement, to be sent by you as one set apart for and because of your holiness, which is majestic and merciful in ways my soul cannot handle, so then sings my soul. We're going to bow, we're going to pray, we'll take our offering, and we're going to sing to this great, holy God. Every head bowed, every eye closed, please. Let's not get up, move around. Let's stay where we are at the throne of God as the Holy Spirit speaks to us. You walked in here, church, friends, neighbors, guests, you have a vision, a view of God. Do you need to lose faith in that vision and view of God and embrace the revelation of God in holiness, in awesomeness, in majesty, in wonder?
God, I just want to ask on the authority of your word and by the promised presence of your spirit that you'd reveal yourself afresh to every person here and listening today. God, we need a fresh visit, a fresh vision, a clearer vision of who you really are, who you are in holiness and awesomeness, who you are in mercy and grace and purpose for us. God, may we receive that. Many of us sit at the crossroads today of this vision of God versus a human worldly glory. God, I pray we choose you. I pray we pursue you. I pray we seek you because you in Christ have first pursued and sought after us. God, we're going to give back to you. God, not to earn brownie points, but as an overflow of your awesomeness and your holiness. God, we're going to sing back to you because I pray, God, something is resonating in our souls right now. Your weight, your glory, your holiness being felt. So we can sing from our soul and say, Oh, Lord, our God, how great thou art. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray.